Last night as I went to bed, I tried to ask the Lord and pray to the Lord that he would give me what I would need to speak on this morning. I try to pray on that daily, um, but sometimes I try to end my day with that prayer in my mind. So this morning I woke up in the book of Second Peter chapter 3, was impressed upon my mind. And I hope the Lord uh, is in this and answered that prayer. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, this is of course the last chapter of two epistles that Peter wrote. We find there's 18 verses in this chapter. And the middle verse is verse 9 where the apostle Peter says, For the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, the first eight verses before this ninth verse leads up to this statement. And then the last nine verses after this verse follow this statement. It's just on both ends of this thought right here, right in the middle of this chapter. Now, the apostle Peter begins this chapter by saying in verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, the apostle Peter uses the word beloved here. Now, when I think of that expression, that's a, a lovely expression. It's a term of endearment. We find other apostles using it. And I think about it, though, I think maybe it would come more from the lips of a man like John than Peter. Peter was a professional fisherman in his day before Christ called him away from it to follow him and become a fisherman of men. I know that Peter was a very strong man. I read in John chapter 21 where he drew the fishes to sea that the Lord had blessed them to catch, a great multitude of great fishes, 150 and 3. And you read before that, you'll find where the disciples all were just dragging the net of fishes to the sea, uh, to the shore. But here the Bible says that Peter himself went and dragged those fishes in. I know he was a man of courage and bravery in the Garden of Gethsemane, find where he pulled a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. The Lord, of course, rebuked him for doing that. He did it in his zeal, in his love and concern for the Savior. But nevertheless, he shouldn't have done it, but he did. And there was a multitude of soldiers there. He was far outnumbered, but he pulled the sword and did it anyway. Peter was very brave, courageous, a very strong man, a very coarse man. But when you read his two letters here, First and Second Peter, you can see a side of Peter besides that. You can see a man with a tender heart. You can see a man who had a heart for God's people. He see a what I would call a shepherd's heart. He concludes 1 Peter chapter 5 by addressing that uh, chapter to the elders. He said uh, uh, who, he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ and of the glory that should be revealed. He says, take the constraint, says, take the oversight of the flock, not by constraint, rather, but willingly, not for filthy Lucas' sake, but of a ready mind. Uh, he's telling him how to take it, how not to take it. He said, being not as lords over God's heritage, but in samples to the flock. Peter had a heart for the people of God. He wanted the elders he was writing to or addressing here to have the same kind of attitude and spirit and heart for them. Peter here uses this word beloved five times in this last chapter. Usually eight times in the two epistles together. Six times in the second epistle, but five of those six in the second epistle is right here in this third chapter. So he says, this second epistle, beloved, 
I now write unto you. Now, it's important when you're studying the Word of God that you always determine who is being spoken to or written to. And it's very important here this morning that you understand that. The you here are those that he addresses in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of the Spirit, under obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing both of these epistles to here. This is the you that's under consideration, and this will be very important when we get down to verse 9 a little bit later. Here the Apostle Peter says, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. He'd already written one, he's writing the second. In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, he says you have pure minds, but they need to be stirred up. Peter used this word remembrance several times in the first letter. You go back and read chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He said, I thought it necessary that I stir up your pure minds. He says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, and when I cease to be in this tabernacle, he says, I want you to be in remembrance of these things. He mentions the word remembrance three times in those verses there. So he wants God's people to remember some things. And you go back again to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He says, though you know them and be established in them. Now, the goal of every pastor is to establish the church. The church is the people to establish them in the principles and the doctrines of the Bible. That takes a long time to do that. It's an ongoing process because everybody's not at the same stage in their life, in their development, in their walk of discipleship. But he says, you are established and you know these things, but I need to stir your mind up by way of remembrance. You don't need to forget them, even though you're established in them, and that you know them. To stir up is to arouse, it is to awaken. We find this exhortation several times in the, in the Bible. Paul, writing in uh, Romans 13 and 11, says, uh, awake. Uh, he says, it is high time to awake out of sleep. He says, for our, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now he tells the church at Rome to wake up. Ephesians 5, 14, he says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. And Christ shall give you not life, but light. If you can wake up, you're alive. <laughs> the dead cannot wake up. Awake thou that sleepest. They are asleep. And these are children of God who are in a sleep. He says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. If I saw two people laying on the ground at a distance, and one was dead and one was asleep, from a distance I probably couldn't tell which one was dead and which one was asleep. But after a while, if I observed them long enough, the one that was asleep would wake up and start moving. Then I could tell which one was dead and which one was alive. But while he's asleep, he's not accomplishing any more than the man that's dead. So the Lord's people need to wake up. He says, awake thou that sleepest. That's what the word stir here means. It's kind of like uh, my wife did when our four children were at home, raising them, training them. And it was school time. And she would go in there and tell them to arise. <laughs> and she said it with some authority. She said it in a manner and way that they knew they didn't need to prolong the, <laughs> the decision to get out of bed. And so the apostle is writing here to stir up the people in this like manner. He says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Here we find where the apostle Peter is putting the Old Testament and the New Testament 
on the same level in a certain sense. He said, you need to be mindful of the words of the holy prophets, but also of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 15, 4 says, the things written aforetime was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We're not under the Old Testament law service. That was completed and satisfied in Christ. We have the New Testament church that we are part of today. But the same God that we have today is the same God that we read about in the Old Testament. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. And he deals with his people in like manner today as he dealt with his people in that particular day. And so there are many lessons because things, some things never change, never will change. God is an unchangeable God. He's immutable. We find that his word is true and his word is unchangeable. We find that man is unchangeable from the standpoint of his nature. Sin is the same today as it was in the Old Testament day. Oh, they give it different names. They come along and call it different things. But what was sin in the Old Testament day is still sin in the New Testament day. Uh, it hasn't changed. Something that was sin then uh, has not become something that's not sin today. So that's why we can learn so many lessons of human nature, how man responds, how man reacts to certain things and different things, but also how God dealt with his people as he deals with us in chastisement and also in judgment. So he says, you're to be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of our Lord and, and Savior. Knowing this first. Now we have an expression here, you know, I, like the old adage, first things first. He says, knowing this first, there shall be scoffers uh, among you. Knowing this first, there shall come scoffer in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lust. And with this expression, last days. Study the scriptures. I think you'll find the three main dispensations of time. You got the time from Adam to Moses, the time from Moses to the first coming of Christ, and the time from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, which will be the end of time. In Isaiah 2.1, we have a prophecy where it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. I think this is a prophetic picture of the gospel church. In the last days, what are the last days? Sometimes people ask the question, are we living in the last days? You are and you have been for the last 20 centuries. But I think right now you're living in the last days of the last days. I'll put it that way. But the mountain of the Lord's house, showing that the Lord's house is far and above the things of this world here, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established where? In the top of the mountains, high and lifted up and exalted. We read in the book of Joel, in chapter 2, where he prophesies of a day uh, that in the last days the Spirit of the Lord shall be poured out. And Peter refers to this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He says, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your young men shall dream dreams, and your old men shall have visions, etc. We see this to be the fulfillment of those last days. In 1 John 2.18, the apostle John says, you have heard it is the last time. And he says, there shall be many antichrists. And he says, and antichrists have already come, and this is the last time. These verses, you put them all together, tells us that the third dispensation is the last days. Now, I believe we're in the last days of the last days. 
When you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, you're going to read where it says, In perilous times shall come in the last days. Now, when you read that list, you'll find things that's been going on ever since the beginning of time. But they were, some of them were far more manifest, you might say, in certain periods of time. But in the present day in which we live, you can't read a single one of them without thinking, yep, that's happening right now. Yep, that's happening right now, today. We experience it right now. We experience it today. So he speaks here about the scoffers coming in the last days. Now, in chapter 2, verse 1, he spoke about false teachers and false apostles. Uh, Paul spoke about these. 2 Corinthians 11 and 13, he says, There shall be false workers and uh, false apostles who shall trans or, or false uh, teachers who shall transform themselves into false apostles. These would be men who would carry the name of apostle, the name of a, a biblical teacher, uh, whatever, but they're false, they're deceitful, they're not true, they're not genuine. So here we have a kind of a special case or a special category of some people, and he refers to them as scoffers. Now, a scoffer is a mocker. A scoffer is somebody that makes light of God, makes fun of people that believe in God, uh, tries to discredit God, tries to discredit the Word of God. Uh, somebody who uh, tells you that you're just those who worship God and go to church are just ignorant folks. Have you ever seen a, a TV program? If you've watched TV for a while and you see where they got a preacher on in an episode or a church or something, they always... Uh, present them as being ignorant, you know, or, and then put them in bad light every single time. And that's what scoffers do. Scoffers only have a carnal mind, only have a carnal heart, and only have a carnal nature. And they walk according. Notice what it says here. It says, uh, knowing this first, there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lust. They're walking after their own carnal mind, their own carnal heart, their own carnal desires. And Christianity gets in the way of it. Christianity is in opposition to it. Uh, they don't like to hear that you're not supposed to do this. They don't like to hear the Ten Commandments. So these scoffers were in the days of the Apostle Peter, and we got plenty of scoffers today uh, in the land in which we live. And here's what they're saying. Where is the promise of his coming? This is how the whole thing gets going. Where is the promise of his coming? Now the Lord stated very clearly while he was on this earth that he was coming again. John 14, 1. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it not so, I'd have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Now, the Lord himself said that. The Lord said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And what he means by that is, God is a God of justice. He's a God of truth. Without iniquity, he's a holy God. And things have to be done in a manner and way that satisfies him. And the Lord Jesus Christ had to come and shed his blood. He had to come and lay down his life, make an offering sacrifice unto the Father on behalf of those whom the Father had given unto him. And he crossed every T and dotted every I. That's the preparation. That's the preparation you couldn't make and I couldn't make. But Jesus Christ made that preparation on behalf of all that the Father gave unto him. I go to prepare a place for you. You may want to buy a new house, but you better not move in until you make and satisfy all the legal requirements, all the legal arrangements, in other words. And nobody will be in heaven short of the legal arrangements that was made by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit 
and God has made them all, and one day we'll all occupy the many mansions under consideration. In my Father's house, heaven itself, are many mansions, places of abode, places of habitation, and there are many of them, there are not just a few of them. I know it's many because Romans 8.29 says it is. Over whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. They might be the firstborn among many brethren. He said, I got many brethren that were foreknown and predestinated, and they're justified, and one day they'll be glorified. So it's going to take many mansions to house many brethren, right? And the amount of brethren and the amount of mansions, I can assure you, are one and the same. They're identical, one and the same. So the question here is, where is the promise of his coming? Why hasn't he come? Where's the promise? Why has it been fulfilled? In Acts chapter 1, after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he spent 40 days on the earth here. And then we find this beautiful scene in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, we find where the Lord defies the law of gravity. Had no problem doing that because he's Lord. He just started going up into the sky. He just started, he was just lifted up. And there were those that were there and witnessed that. And there were some angels there on that occasion, and they asked the question, why stand ye gazing into heaven? Why not? Tell me, who here today would not have gazed into heaven on that occasion? You're going to tell me if you saw a person all of a sudden uh, just leaving this earth, going right up into the sky? You think you'd have turned your uh, uh, you know, attention to something else? You say, okay, this, what, what else y'all want to do today? You think you'd have done something like that? I don't think so. I think you'd have watched him until he disappeared right into the clouds. They said, why stand ye gazing into heaven? This same Jesus you see going away shall in like manner come again. There's the promise of his coming. That's the promise of his coming. So these scoffers are scoffing at such a thought. The scoffers are scoffing at the promise of his coming. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, talk about all those in generations past, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. I do notice here that they seem to acknowledge creation. It says, since creation, all things continue as they were. In other words, there's no divine intervention. There is no chastisement. There is no judgment. Um, all the things that the prophets have written before are just words on a piece of paper. The Bible is just another book of literature. How many times do you hear that from the scoffers today? Oh, it's a pretty good book. You know, it's a, when you get from the standpoint of literature, it, it ranks right up there at the top. Well, I'm telling you, it's far more than literature, brethren. Uh, there's nothing to compare with it. It's majestic. It's amazing. It's miraculous. It's God's word. Every word in it is true. Every word in it is pure. But the scoffers would tell you otherwise. Now, they say everything continues like it had been from the beginning. Notice how Peter responds to this. Verse 5. For this they, the scoffers, willingly are ignorant of. They're not just ignorant, they're willingly ignorant of. And the reason I say that is because they had the Old Testament. They had 39 books to read. They had 39 books to look into. They had 39 books to search. They were willingly ignorant of it. They were willingly ignorant of passages like Job chapter 19. When Job said, oh, that my words were now written in a book. That they were led uh, like, you know, like with an iron pen in, in the rock with an iron pen. He said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he shall stand at the latter day. 
And though the skin worms destroy this my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. The words he's saying right there can be placed right over here in the New Testament and would harmonize with everything the New Testament tells us about the resurrection. Note, he says, I know my Redeemer liveth. Job claimed to have a personal and individual Redeemer. I don't have a problem with people referring to Christ as a personal Savior. I believe I have a personal Savior. I think each one of you have a personal Savior. The Lord saved His people collectively. Yes, He did indeed. But you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a personal relationship with the Son of God. You have a personal and individual relationship. He loved you personally and individually when He chose you in Christ before time ever began. Job says, I know my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand. Notice the shalls. The Old Testament had the shalls as well as the new. He shall stand at the latter day. And though the skin worms destroy this my body, yes, this body came from dust, is going back to dust, yet in my flesh, resurrection, shall I see God. I'll see him for myself and for not another. They're saying words like this are just words. They're saying words like this is just literature. Just man having a dream or a vision or something and pinning down words. I can assure you these words that Job wrote were led in the rock with an iron pen. He said, oh, that they were written. Oh, brother Job, they were written. And thank God they were written. And we have them written and we can read it today. They were willingly ignorant of passages just like that. And I can go and mentioned, obviously, numerous passages. Well, I'll just put it this way. They were ignorant of all passages from Genesis and Malachi because they say things continue as they were, and Peter says they are willingly ignorant. Now, ignorance is usually not good. <laughs> well, nobody knows everything except a few people, I could tell you. But anyway, um, you know, there are some, everybody doesn't know everything about everything, even though some people would try to persuade you they do. Everybody's ignorant on something. I think it was Will Rogers said, we're all ignorant just on different subjects. So these people, though, are willingly ignorant. The Apostle Paul was very concerned with God's people not being ignorant on a number of things. There's at least five, maybe six uh, passages where Paul starts off his message like this, I will not have you to be ignorant. I will not have you to be ignorant. And the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ just happens to be one of them in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. Peter says, these people are willingly ignorant. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Knowledge is wonderful. The Lord said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We need to be knowledgeable about the Word of God. And as Paul used the word ignorant several different times, at least five or six, on certain topics he didn't want God's people ignorant of, you'll find he used the word know, K-N-O-W, numerous times, many times, when he say, and we know, and we know. This is information that we know. This is important information. This is profitable information. This is beneficial information. This is information that we know. The Lord's people are to be an informed people. And we have no excuse not to be because we have the Word of God before us. But he says, these scoffers are willingly ignorant concerning the promise of his coming. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the Word of God... The heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. By the word of God. This expression here, word of God, simply means the authority of the spoken word of God. The power of the spoken word of God. The omnipotent God. 
When you go to Genesis chapter 1, it starts off, of course, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then what do we have? No less than 10 times you'll find where it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. Everything came into existence. Everything that we see, the sun, the moon, the stars, this earth in which we live here, all came in existence by the word of God. That is the voice of God himself. You know, Psalms 29 uh, tells us that the voice of the Lord is powerful. It's well worth your time to go read this beautiful psalm. Psalms 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. It says it uh, splits the cedars of, of Lebanon. <laughs> now, if you're familiar with the cedars of Lebanon, they were the tall, stately trees uh, that the Bible refers to so many different times to symbolize different things. Uh, the cedars of Lebanon were the prime trees, the most beautiful trees, the tallest trees, the most useful trees. It says the word or the voice of the Lord divided the cedars of Lebanon. It causes the hinds to calf, so forth and so on. And we could kind of get on the sidetrack here. Don't want to do that necessarily very much. But when I think about the voice of the Lord being powerful, I can't help but think, of course, of John 5, 25, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall live. How powerful is that? That's exactly what it takes for somebody to be raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. That's exactly why it takes somebody to be born of the Spirit of God. It requires the voice of the Son of God speaking to them directly, personally, and individually, and life being imparted. That's the power of God's voice. And then three verses later, it says, And marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, when they are in the grave shall hear what? His voice. Now, you've been hearing His words this morning, but you had not heard His voice. But the fact you have an interest in his words is an indication you have heard his voice in times past when that voice spake and borns you of his spirit. And now you can hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and feed upon those words and be strengthened and comforted by those words because you have heard the voice, the voice that is powerful, the voice of God that's so powerful it can raise the dead. How powerful is the voice of Christ when he came to the grave of Lazarus? He just simply said, Lazarus, come forth. And there was no hesitation. There was no delay. He just came forth right out of the grave. I don't know if I come up with a better example of the power of the voice of the Lord than that. So Peter here says, whereby the world, uh, verse 5, he says, for the, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Now he's describing this earth from the time of Adam to Noah the world that he spoke in the creation in the beginning. He then says in verse 6, Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That world perished being overflowed with water. So what does Peter uh, do in response to when they said all things continue as they were from the beginning of time since the fathers fell asleep? He just brings up the subject of the flood. He just brings up the subject of the flood. And he don't even mention Noah and the ark. He just brings up the flood. And he says, the world that then was, was overflowed, and that world perished. I'd say a change took place there, wouldn't you? I'd say things now did not continue the same as they were from the very beginning. So Peter refutes this with this one example of the flood that we find recorded, of course, in Genesis. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, as after the flood, 
He says, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store. By the same word that spoke the world into existence, things continue on to this very day, right now. By God's word, the sun still rises, the sun still sets. By God's word, the earth still is rotating and revolving. By the Lord's word, everything is so precise that men can base their calculations on it to the point they can send somebody to the moon. They can put up rockets and satellites and everything else because everything that God did is so precise they can count on it being just exactly as it has been all along since he put it up there. So he said, by the same word, notice this expression right here, are kept in store. This, this very thought teaches me that man will never destroy this earth. That's why the Lord says you know the truth, the truth to make you free. It'll free you from just swallowing everything you hear on the news. It'll keep you from swallowing everything you pick up and read from a newsstand. He says, these things are kept in store by God. That means God is going to see to it that they're not destroyed until the time comes and when he shall destroy it. Man will never destroy this earth. Yes, he misuses the things of this world and this earth. He misuses it. He abuses it. He wastes it. Uh, I mean, it's incredible how much is wasted in the world today. How much food, for example, is wasted in restaurants when we have many people in the world who are starving, many people in the world who are very hungry, and yet so much food is just being wasted. Man has not done a very good job in managing what God has put into his hands, I can tell you that. But anyway, this world is being kept in store by God. You read the same thing in Hebrews 1.3 concerning Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Uh, it says, who by him, by his word, uh, all things uh, continue as until today. Uh, the Lord who created all things is maintaining all things. The Lord who spoke the world into existence by the power of his word is now keeping it maintained by the word of his power. And that's what the apostle Peter is saying here. He says, whereby the world that then was being overflowed then perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There's a day of judgment coming. There is a time when fire shall destroy this earth again. The Lord will keep in store all of his creation until that time arrives. Man will not destroy the earth. He may damage it. He may abuse it. He may misuse it. And he does all those things. But he will not destroy this earth. God made a promise found over here in the book of Genesis. After the flood, the Lord said, As long as the earth remaineth, there shall be certain things that's going to happen. As long as the earth remaineth, there shall be seed time and harvest, coal and heat, summer and winter. These things will continue on as long as the earth remaineth. Now, what's that expression mean to you? As long as the earth remaineth. Doesn't that sound like that there come a day when the earth will not remain? As long as the earth remaineth, there will be cold and heat. There will be night and day. There will be summer and there will be winter. There will be seed time and there will be harvest. We can't eat unless there's seed time. We can't eat if there's not a harvest. 
And God in his mercy still allows us to plant the seed and to harvest the seed and provide food for his people throughout the entire world. It's just amazing to me how we can grow enough food to feed billions of people on a daily basis. But until the Lord brings all things to an end, there will always be seed time and harvest. Now, he says, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I've heard that quoted oftentimes with people who just take it right out of context and try to prove various things. Now, I'm going to tell you exactly all they say right here in very simple terms. God is not bound by time. God is apart from time. God's separate from time. God doesn't have a watch on his wrist, and God doesn't have a calendar, and God doesn't have a birthday, and God doesn't have an anniversary. Uh, he's not bound by time. He's eternal. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses said, The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath is everlasting arms. Psalms 90 verse 1 says he's from everlasting to everlasting. God is apart from time, above time, separate from time, not bound by time, but we are timely creatures right here. We can't operate without time, can we? We track every single day. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And he gets into that by saying, for one day with the Lord has a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is not up there counting time. Time with God doesn't exist. God's the one who created time when he created the heaven and the earth and created man from the dust of the earth. So one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day with the Lord from that point of view. Then he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, singular. Now in 2 Peter, in the same letter, we find in verse 1 where he said, Whereby are given us exceeding great and precious promises, plural. We spoke about some of those promises in weeks past. I believe I told you that uh, Herbert Lockyer tried to count all the promises of God in the Bible, put a book out, All the Promises of God. It's a wonderful book, very informative. But I guarantee you he missed a promise or two somewhere along the line. So God is a God of promises, isn't he? And I love the promises of God when it comes to our relationship with him. I love the promises of God that we find, for example, over here in Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, all the promises of God in him, that is in Christ, are yea and amen. That means uh, uh, that you can count on them, they're sure, and they're final. Here it's not promises, it's promise. What's the promise under consideration here? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Remember, one day with the Lord's last a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. God's above time, apart from time, separate from time, not bound by time, like we are here. We're timely creatures. He's not slack concerning his promise, some men count slackness, but his long suffering to usward. Remember I told you early in this discourse, this message, the importance of seeing who the writer is writing to, he uses this word, usward. So who is the usward in this text? This usward is the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. This usward is the elect who are sanctified by the Spirit of God. This usward is those who uh, benefit and are the objects of God's love and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has cleansed from their sins. That's the usward that's under consideration here. 
God is not slack concerning his promise, who? To usward, right? Now notice what goes on after this. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now this verse is taken out of the context of this chapter oftentimes to try to show that God would have every single human being on this earth according to his will to be saved. I want to ask you this question. Over here in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 35, you find where King Nebuchadnezzar made one of the greatest theological statements you find in the Bible by any man, prophet, apostle, anybody else. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? He said, God works his will. If God is not willing that any should perish, guess what? None's going to perish. It's that simple. If God's not willing that any should perish, then none are going to perish. Paul told Timothy to study the right to divide the word of truth, and here's one of those subjects that's very necessary to do so. I read over here in John 10, 28, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, if the Lord said they shall never perish, who he gives eternal life to, I know the perishing here cannot be eternal. It cannot be an eternal perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Apostle Paul said, for those, uh, he, he has two categories of people here. He says, the gospel is to those that perish foolishness. Those which are saved, it is the power of God. He puts people in two categories, those that perish and those who are saved, and the impact the gospel has on both of them. The gospel over here to those that perish, it's a foolish message. To those who are saved over here, it represents the power of God, you see. There are those that will perish, but not none of the usward are going to perish. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise to usward who believe, or the usward in consideration here. He says he's not willing that any should perish, and they will not perish. He gives unto them eternal life. Eternal life is a gift. They shall not perish. They cannot perish. Listen to what Paul asks in these questions in Romans chapter 8. He says, after he gets through telling us that uh, we've been foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, and glorified, he says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. If God justifies them, nobody can lay a charge to them. They cannot perish. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died for them, yea, rather it's risen again, who's on the right hand of God making intercession for them. If Christ died for them, rose for them, making intercession for them, they cannot be condemned. They cannot perish. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trials, tribulations, nakedness, perils, a sword? He said, Nay, in all these things are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He said, For we're all like sheep, you know, which have gone astray. We're all led as a lamb to the slaughter. He says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death, height nor depth, principalities, powers, or any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you cannot be separated from the love of God, you're not going to perish. If you cannot be condemned, you cannot perish. If you cannot be 
charged with something because God justified, you cannot perish. The Lord said, I know my sheep and hear my voice. They follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So if they're not, if it's God's will, they're not going to perish. Guess what? They're not going to perish. Read it again. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Some men count slackness. But his long suffering to usward, not willing any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, repentance is a very interesting subject. There's different aspects of repentance. We find in Acts 17, verse 30, where God has commanded all men to repent. In Romans 2, 4, it says, The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. Guess what happens when you're born of the Spirit of God? God takes your mind, which in, by human nature is a carnal mind. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither need can be. That carnal mind will never pray to God, will never have an interest in God, will never love God. But God gives him another mind. Romans chapter 8 says, I'll write my laws in their mind and print them in the hearts. He then gives them a mind, which is a change that takes place in their inward being, in their soul, in the mind that God gives them, will love God, will cry out to God, and will pray to God. And the heart that's on the inside, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's a thief above all things, is desperate wicked, who can know it? The heart that Ezekiel called, describes as being a hard and stony heart, a lifeless heart, a heart that will never cry out to God. A heart that will never pray to God. A heart that will never express love and appreciation for God. God takes that heart out and puts a heart of flesh in the place of it. And guess what that heart can do? That heart can love God. That heart will cry out to God. That heart will pray to God. Now, that heart can be given and will be given to those who pass away in their mother's womb. God's grace is never late. God's grace will all be, always be on time. And God's grace can reach right inside the womb of a person, of a mother, my friends. And before the knife of the abortionist ever gets in there to do its job, that little child will be born of the Spirit of God and his soul and spirit will take its flight right into glory. Right into glory. He's not willing any should perish. But all come to repentance. That new heart and that new mind is a change from the heart and mind they had in the very beginning, and that's going to happen with every child of grace, every child of God in their earthly existence here in this world. No matter how short it is, how long it is, doesn't matter. I love the text over here again in Hebrews chapter 8, which says, No longer shall they teach any man to know his, uh, any man to know his neighbor. It says, But all shall know me, all shall know me, from the least unto the greatest. Now we're going to have to do the rest in about two minutes. Two-minute recap. But the day of the Lord becomes a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This world that God is keeping by the word of his power, that we read over here again, that he is kept in store has now reached a point where the Lord's going to come back and the end is going to take place. Now notice the four things that's going to happen. First of all, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night. That means it's going to come unexpectedly and without out announcement. 
unexpectedly. It's going to come that way. And the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation in godliness? With the truth of this matter, that God has saved his people from their sins and will one day raise their bodies from the grave and reunite them with their souls and their spirit and take them home to glory. When he shall say to the sheep on his right hand, Come, ye blessed my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he's not only going to save us, my friends, uh, uh, from our sins, he's going to save us from this earth in which we live right here and take us home to be with him in glory. When you understand these things shall be kept by God in store to the second coming of the Savior and that God's going to burn this world up and take you out of it, going to get you out of this mess. It reminds me, <laughs> Elder Pat Bird down in the state of Georgia who was known for uh, having a lot of different sayings and he was in hospital and he was in bad, bad shape, not expecting to live. But some of the preacher brothers who respect him so highly came there to ask him for some counsel. Here's what he said. He said, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. I'm ready to get out of this mess. And one but a short time after that, he was out of this mess. So with that knowledge and information, what manner of persons ought we to be? We ought to be the kind of people who ought to be the most thankful people upon the face of this earth. We should be the kind of people who would not like to shine before men. They might see our good works and glorify our Heavenly Father, uh, which is in heaven, who gave His only begotten Son. We ought to be the kind of people that's willing to speak, uh, you know, in defense of the Savior and express our love for the Master, for the one who loved us so great. He was willing to live here in this world and be rejected, but willing to suffer and bleed and die on our behalf on Calvary. We ought to be the kind of people to be faithful in the house of God that we present our body a living sacrifice, holy acceptance of God, which is his reasonable, our reasonable service. We ought to be the kind of people that are so happy to support the house of God with the substance that God has blessed us with. We ought to be the kind of people that want to praise God and honor God and glorify God. Whether it's Sunday, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, we ought to just be people, my friends, who if we had 10,000 tongues, we'd employ them to giving God the praise and the glory for what he's done for us. That's the kind of people we ought to be. Where is the promise of his coming? Don't worry, children. He's coming. Scripture makes it very plain. No man knows the day or the hour when he comes. But the Scripture is also very plain that he's coming. And I like to think of it like this. I'm one, close, one day closer today than I was yesterday. <laughs> I'm one week closer today than I was last Sunday. When I preached last Sunday, I didn't know the Lord might come back that day, but he didn't. Seven days later, he didn't, but I'm seven days closer. We're closer than anybody's ever been upon the face of this earth. You ever think about that? Today, this day, you're closer to the second coming of the Lord and a glorious resurrection and lifting up and meeting the Lord in the air than you were yesterday or last week, last month, or last year. And day, that day is going to come and we shall all experience with great joy beyond our comprehension. Thank you so very much.